Every good story has to have angels, the good guys, and demons, the bad guys. What causes you to believe that one character is good and another is evil? It is a bigger question to ask who actually can decide who is good and who is evil. Our study leader, Dave Wardson, looks at this question that Daniel wrestles with as he moves towards the close of his book, beginning in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40. It is on this night in Vatican City that an ancient ritual is taking place. The new pope is yet to be selected as we see the black smoke coming from the chimney of the Sistine Chapel. The entire world is watching and waiting. Which is why this is the perfect moment for our revenge. Well, Dan Brown is at it again. But once again, we've got this ultimate angel-demon story. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I want all of you to realize, I want the kids, I want the teenagers, when you go to the movies, I want you to ask, who are the angels? That's the good guys. And who are the demons? Those are the bad guys. You got it? Now, it's really simple. Like in a John Wayne Western, John Wayne is the good guy. The bad guys are the guys that are shooting up the town or taking the widows out, whatever it might be. So every time you go to the movies, when you pick up a book, when you pick up a book, there are good guys and bad guys. And what you need to understand is that, that the question, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, is a really important question. In fact, a lot of you just sit there and you watch, you know, Angels and Demons, and you don't even think about the fact of who does Dan Brown think is a good guy? Well, Robert Landon, that Tom Hanks is playing from Harvard University, is a good guy. For Dan Brown as an author, guys that teach at Harvard and meddle in all kinds of historical studies with a touch of progressive, rational science, those are the good guys. Somehow, evidently, I don't know, the Roman Catholic Church wasn't so good for Dan, I guess, because they're usually the bad guys to some degree. So when you're watching a Dan Brown film, it's really important for you to first of all ask yourself, is, who is Dan Brown as I'm watching this film? Who is he saying is a good guy and who is a bad guy? In order to understand his film, you need to enter into that. It's the same in a book that you read. It's the same when you listen to me today. Like, as you listen to me today, uh, Dave Wharton believes there are good guys and there are bad guys. And that'll really help you to understand stories. And the way that an author holds your attention is he makes conflict between the good guys and the bad guys. And usually there's a twist in the story because who you thought was a really good guy might turn out to be a bad guy. And who you thought was a demon, the bad guy, might in the end turn out to be a good guy. And if the person that you thought was bad turned out to be a good guy, then that's a redemptive story. And that's a story that grabs you the strongest, okay? Now, what I want you to know is that the Word of God is way ahead of Dan Brown, because if you turn to Daniel chapter 11 today, Daniel, 500 years and more before Christ, closed the book of Daniel talking about an angel-demon story. He talks about the ultimate archangel, whose name is Michael, the powerful defender of the people of Israel who are Daniel's people. 
And then he also talks about this little horn that he introduced to us in Daniel chapter 7 that comes out of the fourth empire. In chapter 11, he weaves together two bad guys that he's been telling us about all the way through the book. And he keeps referring back to the one is a terrible bad guy that came against Israel beginning in 168 B.C., He was a Syrian ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he desecrated the temple, and he he tried to get all of the children of Israel to stop circumcising their kids, to get them to turn to the worship of the Greek gods, especially the Greek god Zeus. He offered pigs on the altar, according to the book of Maccabees, in the Holy of Holies. Uh, Many, many Israelites turned away from the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they did what a lot of your friends do. They just joined with the secular culture. But there's an ultimate, Daniel through this chapter tells you about that career and he closes talking about how he desecrates the temple. Then when we get to Daniel chapter 11, 35, he introduces a, or a, he, he introduces a, a transition. Look what it says in Daniel eleven thirty five. Everybody got it? Daniel eleven thirty five. Some of the wise will stumble. In other words, there's going to be some of those who, who have been following what Daniel's been saying. They've been discerning what he's saying. It would be some of you. Some of you, as you've been listening the last several months, you are tracking with Daniel. Your heart joins with Daniel, and you're buying into what Daniel says is good. Because if you ask this question about who are the good guys in this story and who are the bad guys, when you're listening to a movie like or watching a movie like Angels and Demons, Dan Brown is telling you who he thinks is good and who he thinks is bad. What I want you to ask is a much deeper question. How do you know, ultimately, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are? In other words, how do you know, in the ultimate reality, who's really good and who's really bad? And then a deeper question is, who's the ultimate one that determines who's good and who's bad? Like in this room right now, you guys got all different kinds of opinions, and I could get you an argument, and it would be arguments about what you consider good and what others consider bad. And we argue back and forth. Almost any discussion, almost any argument you get in, you have the good guys, and you believe you're on the side of the good, and your enemy that you're arguing with thinks they're on the side of the good. But you think they're on the side of the bad, right? That's what makes a good fight. But the question you need to ask yourself is who ultimately determines who the good guys and who the bad guys are? And in the book of Daniel, Daniel's going to introduce us to the ultimate bad guy. He introduces us to a great world ruler that rises out of the fourth monstrous empire. We were introduced, remember in chapter 7, to four beasts. And the fourth beast was indescribably awful and powerful, and violent, and vindictive, and out of the final expression of this, that horrifying beast that Daniel said it was kind of a conglomeration of all the other beasts, there arises this little horn that speaks great things. Like any good author, Daniel whetted your appetite for this individual, and what he was going to tell you about this individual. In chapter 9, when he talked to us about the Messiah that would come, there was also going to be a prince who would come who would come out of the people that crucified God's Messiah. That whets my appetite even more as I'm reading the book of Daniel. And Daniel's telling me this ultimate Messiah who's going to come is the good guy. But he is going to be in a tremendous conflict with the bad guy. 
And he's going to give us, as we look at Daniel 11, 35 and following today, he's going to sketch out for us, first of all, these are the characteristics of a bad guy. These are the characteristics of the ultimate person that you've all been designated. You know from the New Testament, his name is Antichrist, which means exactly that. He's anti the Messiah. But what I want you to ask yourself deep in your heart is, do you agree with Daniel that this is a bad guy? These are qualities in a person's character that are bad. And what I want to present to you is I don't think, and I want the students to especially listen to me, I think that the characteristics of the bad guy that Daniel's going to present are really bad things. I don't think they're relative. I don't think you can say, well, in another country, they wouldn't be bad. Or if he was born at a different time, they wouldn't be bad. And I think the decision you make in your heart about whether or not you believe these character qualities are bad is really important. The other thing as we go through these, I want you to ask yourself is, how much does this kind of a bad character have a hold of me? Because if this kind of a character has a hold of me in the way that I conduct business, in the way that I live in my marriage, in the way that I father my kids, the way that I mother my kids, the way that I conduct friendships, the way that I look at the world, then I'm on the side of the demons. That makes sense? And I need to do business about that if I want to get on the side of the angels. So that's what we're going to do today. Let's look, first of all, we're going to look at the Antichrist, the ultimate bad guy controlled by a demon. The book of Revelation filled us in a lot more details in Revelation 13, and you can look at that maybe later on, maybe this afternoon. But Revelation tells us that this ultimate bad guy really is controlled by the ultimate demon, Satan. And the book of Daniel has told us that behind the world conflict, behind the Russians against the U.S. and Israel against the Palestinians and the Palestinians against the Israelis and the Arabs against the Jews and on and on it goes. It says as all the nations vie that there's an intense spiritual warfare taking place in the heavenly realms. And now we have the ultimate expression of the world leader that Satan's going to bring to the fore. Let's look at his characteristics beginning in verse 36. It begins, the king, and I notice it calls him the king. Antiochus Epiphanes is never really called the king. That's a signal to me that Daniel shifted gears a little bit. He's going to blend his discussion, the Old Testament Antichrist, with his discussion in the New Testament Antichrist. He says, first of all, he does what he pleases, and the idea is not that he just follows his own pleasures, although that's so. And I've taught you that one of the basic characteristics of evil is that we think we do what we want to do. But this basic phrase, it's used several times in the book of Daniel, it means that a world ruler comes up and he looks invincible. As you go through life, there's going to be those individuals that don't believe in Jesus, they curse Jesus, they reject him. But they have tons of money, they have tons of intelligence, they have tons of power, and they win. As Americans, we're really in. If you win, then it must be good. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need to first of all understand that Daniel tells us that there's going to be an ultimate antichrist who at first does whatever he pleases, which means that he's invincible. When he attacks an enemy, he wins. And he's going to do this repeatedly. When he tries to get political forces to gather together and unite them, he wins. So the very first characteristic of this individual is that he, in his own being, in his person, he believes he succeeds because of himself. Watch out for that. In your own life, where do you think your success comes from? What do you think makes you prosper? Who do you think is in control of whether you win 
or whether you lose. The ultimate expression of Antichrist that's going to reveal in this final king is he doesn't believe that it's rooted in Daniel's God. He doesn't believe that God controls the time and the seasons. He doesn't believe that God made a promise that God would send his Messiah. He doesn't believe in God at all, we're going to find out. So the very first characteristic is that he's very successful. He does whatever he wants to do. Look at it, it says in verse 36. It says, he will exalt himself. He lifts himself up and he magnifies himself or makes himself great above every God. So this individual believes that he's greater than any other supernatural being that men have worshipped down through time. He believes that he's greater than that. That's a very important characteristic. You need to understand as you go out into the world this week that there's those individuals that believe that there's no upper level. There's no transcendent place. It's just you and this present earth, this present universe. There's no ultimate supernatural being. They deny that. And they believe that they themselves make themselves great. They are self-made people. Watch out for that. Do you think that that's a good characteristic or a bad characteristic? What do you think? Good characteristic or a bad characteristic? What I want to understand is that it's a dumb characteristic too. The longer that I live, the dumber that I think it is. In other words, intelligence. Dave, Lowry, and I, and Deb, and Mary have a precious friend. In fact, the guy that taught me how to do what I'm doing, gave me the basic skills to be able to interpret the New Testament, went for a run on Thursday morning. We thought he was the epitome of strength. Even Dave just told me this morning that one of his colleagues said, you look really great. And Harold Honer says, I feel great. This man went from a farm in Utica to Cambridge University with a PhD, and then he laid the foundation for Dallas's New Testament department. He's one of the smartest men that I've ever known. He's also one of the most relational men that I've ever known. But just like that, he went for a, a, a run, told Ginny, his wife, he's going to take a shower. She heard a thud in the bathroom, and just like Hans, our associate pastor, he was gone. And that's why if you don't think that there's not an upper story, if you think you make yourself great, if you think because of your intelligence, a lot of people feel, if I went to Cambridge University, then I can make great things happen. I got news for you. It doesn't make a bloody difference whether you go to Cambridge or whether you graduate from elementary school. That's as far as you get. When it's time to die, you're done. And that makes all of human pretensions towards greatness stupid. And Harold, Dr. Honer, believed that with all of his heart. And so I believe it's, it's really foolish and evil and part of the spirit of Antichrist to not accept the fact that I'm just mortal, that I can't make myself great. This ultimate world ruler in very serious commitment to evil, I make myself great. And he boasts about it. Pride can get a hold of all of us. Look at the third characteristic. It says that he speaks powerful things against the true God. It says he magnified himself, and it says he says unheard of things against the God of gods. It uses a, a weird combination here. That the Hebrew word that he used here is wondrous things. It's words that I would usually use, like you were just singing wondrous things to Jesus, and that's worship. But Daniel twists that to have this characteristic of Antichrist 
that rather than speaking about the wonders of God, he uses this word that means that he is blaspheming God, that he is speaking unbelievably horrible things against God. That's why when you go to the movies and they curse Jesus, that shouldn't just go by you. I had a sister in Christ tell me yesterday, I don't like to go to the movies and have them curse Jesus. Most of you just take it for granted. You don't even hear it anymore. It should bother you. It should bother me. That is speaking unheard of things, blasphemous things against the ultimate good, against the ultimate Savior. And and what's happening in that movie is they're telling you, People that believe that Jesus is the ultimate Savior, he's the really good one, they're bad. Because you curse that name. Because Jesus isn't good. Now, they don't come right out and tell you that, but that's what's going on in this spiritual warfare. And that's what's wrong with using the name of Jesus to just get things off your chest, for example. Even worse, to actually curse his name. And there are those that come down this gradation of evil. They just speak horrible things against the living God. Look at the next characteristic. He says that he speaks my terribly unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. Daniel puts a little phrase in here before he goes on to some other characteristics. He says, as I'm sitting there going, "Uh uh-oh. Are things out of control, which I often feel in my life, and you do too, probably felt that this week. God says, no, it's not out of control. Even as this ultimate, self-made, prideful, blasphemous world ruler, God is saying, I'm in control of time. I'm still determining what's happening, which is a great comfort to me. It doesn't mean that there's not this horrible conflict going on. It doesn't mean that everything is the expression of God's heart. It doesn't mean that there isn't ultimately this incredible conflict between the good guys and the bad guys. Daniel's saying there is all of that. But he's saying that the God of gods writes the story and determines who wins in the end. You got that? And Daniel throws you that. He's saying that this has been determined, what's going to take place has been determined, and it's going to be written according to God's script, which gives me great comfort. Then he goes on and gives me some other characteristics. Let's look at the next characteristics of this ultimate Antichrist. He will uh, show no regard for the God of his fathers. It's a normal thing for every one of you men, even if you don't go to church, even if you don't worship, you have a regard for those that your parents and your grandparents believe. How many of you know some unbelievers that don't ever go to church, but when you are drinking coffee with them, they show some regard for their Baptist upbringing or for their Methodist upbringing? Anybody know anybody like that? That's what Daniel's talking about. It's normal, even in the pagan world that Daniel was living in the midst of. It was normal for any man and any woman you have a regard for the transcendent beings that your parents worship. Now, Daniel's not saying that all of, you know, all of the pagan worship is accurate, but it's very similar to what, Dan, what Paul did at Mars Hill. When Paul spoke to the Athenians, he noticed as he went up on the mountain to have this very, very insightful talk with all the Athenian philosophers, he noticed that the hill was filled with the worship of gods. It was filled with all these idols. 
And Paul saw one that was written to the unknown God. And the Greeks were trying to cover the bases. Tom Harris, who was born in Thessaloniki, tells me that the Greeks wanted to cover all the bases. So they said, we want to have a God that we don't know what his name is, but he is the ultimate one. And Paul skillfully grabbed a hold of that, and he doesn't antagonize his audience. He says, I see you're very religious people. And what he's saying is, I notice you, your heart is grappling to try to find out the great ultimate one that's out there. And then Paul goes on and expresses this incredible good news. I'm going to tell you about the unknown God, and I'm going to make him known. The Antichrist doesn't have any regard for that kind of religious piety. He is just a blatant secularist. In modern terminology, we use the word a secularist. A secularist believes that there's no transcendent powers out there. There is just this. Their own power, their own skill, their own might, and their own pride. And they don't show any regard for any of the religions that they receive through time. By the way, I know that Daniel's not talking about Antiochus Epiphanes because one thing that the Syrian ruler did do was he worshiped Zeus like crazy. He tried, that's what he tried to do is get the Jewish people to turn away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and worship Zeus. And often Zeus, and it's hard to, find, you know, to look at the, uh, the, the images, and sometimes people have held that you know, Antiochus Epiphanes makes himself Zeus. But one thing I know for sure from the second century sources is that Antiochus Epiphanes was a very religious guy. And he really tried, well, his, his problem was that instead of allowing for the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he tried to get them to become Greeks and to worship the false gods of Greece. And God came down and judged them for that. But he did show regard for the gods of his fathers. So I, that's why I know it's not ultimately speaking about Antichrist. The ultimate Antichrist is not going to have any regard for religion at all. He'll feign it. And this is very important to understand. The book of Revelation tells us that he has a false prophet that, that, that acts religious and wins people's hearts, uses religion in order to win allegiance. But in Antichrist's heart, he doesn't have any regard for religious things. The next thing that's really powerful about his characteristics is that he shows no desire for the desire of women. He has no regard. He doesn't, has nothing connect with him about the desire for women. This is a really tough phrase. If you're in university, they'll probably tell you, well, this is Tammuz, or this is Dionysius, the goddess, one of the goddesses that was worshipped down in Egypt. And a lot of debate, like in Ezekiel, that talked about the Israelite women sewing garments to Tammuz, this goddess of fertility. The reason I hold that Daniel's not saying this is because through this whole book, Daniel's been speaking to us against the gods of Babylon. And the Old Testament, one of the lines that it sets up, which is one of the things that I know that Dan Brown isn't a good guy when he's writing, because in Dan Brown's writing in the Da Vinci Code, the goddess is the ultimate good thing. So when you kids are reading the Da Vinci Code, when you get to the very end, his ultimate good character, Robert Landon, is at the Sabon, and he's kneeling before the supposed sarcophagus of Mary Magdalene, who is the symbol of ultimately woman fertility. And you girls, according to Dan Brown, can bring us salvation. And I'm not ready to believe that. You understand what I'm saying? And Tammuz and Dionysius 
and all the feminine gods. In, Bab- in Canaanite thinking, it's Ashtard or Anatot. All these different goddesses represent the force, the power of fertility. And Daniel's not going to say that it's a bad thing that he shows no regard for fertility goddesses. I believe in Daniel's argument, it's what I've taught you. I think one of the heart stories of the whole Old Testament, I want you to be sure to get this, one of the storylines, one of the plots that leads you to the ultimate good is that when Adam and Eve fell, God made a promise to Eve, you're going to produce babies. In fact, you're going to produce ultimately the baby. It's going to be a man baby, and he's going to mortally wound and destroy and bring a deadly final blow against the serpent after the serpent's able to bite him and inflict injury on him, which you've all known. We followed that story all the way through the Old Testament. You have the desired woman. Sarah, for example, just to show you how this story develops. Sarah, her desire is to have a son. The desire of woman is to have the son. And in the story, Isaac becomes a symbol of the ultimate son. That's why God has Abraham take him to a mountain in Mount Moriah and has him almost sacrifice him, and then he stops him, but he's whetting your appetite for the story, for the big thing. Like any good, good movie producer, like Ron Howard's a great director, and the God's even greater. He gives you little clues, and if you don't want to buy them, you don't have to buy them. Daniel's been telling you in this book, Daniel 2, you have all these images, and finally there's a stone that's cut out without hands, and he attacks the image, and all the image comes crashing down. Daniel's telling us there's going to be an ultimate one that comes from God. In chapter 7, there's one like the Son of Man who comes and is able to set up a universal kingdom. It's the incredible promise of the Old Testament that ultimately the good guys are going to win and they're going to set up a universal kingdom. And Daniel said that there's a prince that's going to come. He's the desire of women. He's the one that the true women in the Old Testament hungered to produce. And that's why when Mary had Gabriel appear to her, the same angel that appeared to Daniel, And Gabriel gave her this incredible promise that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. And what would be conceived of her would be of the Holy Spirit. Why did that young teenage girl say, I'll submit, I'll obey? Because she was a Jewish girl. The desire of a Jewish woman's heart was to produce the Messiah. Now the desire of woman would become reality. Isn't that a great story? Don't you think that's a great story? Come on. I think it's an awesome story. But the Antichrist thinks it's a terrible story. He doesn't buy the desire of women. He curses the desire of women. He doesn't believe in the prince is going to come. What else does he do? Let's look at the next characteristic. He doesn't believe in the Messiah. He doesn't regard any God. He will exalt himself above them all. So that's what I've been teaching you. And notice how we began with that characteristic and we end with it. And it's characteristic. But what does he worship? I want you to know Antichrist does worship. He worships himself, but he also worships something. If you're a secularist, I want especially the kids to listen. If you don't believe in the God of the Bible and you don't believe in the ultimate king, if you believe that you determine what's right and what's wrong, ultimately, you bow before just power. 
Might makes right. And that's Antichrist's creed. When he worships, he worships plain power, which is the ultimate expression of evil. It's violent. Murder becomes right. It's a horrible, horrible darkness. Look what it says. It says that instead of them, he honors a god of fortresses. That's where I get this idea. The idea of fortresses in the ancient world, the fortress was your, your safety militarily, the forts that you built. So in the modern term line, would say that he worships the god of war. And it says that he honors this unknown god. He doesn't honor the god of his fathers. Instead, he honors this new god, the god of military might, with gold, with precious stones, and with costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god, and he will greatly honor those who acknowledge him or give him allegiance is the idea there. And it says he will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land for a price. Antichrist God is power. And if you worship power and military might, it takes a ton of money. Now, as Americans, we need to be really careful of this. Because as Americans, we are the most militarily powerful country in the world today. And we honor the military with gold and precious stones. And that's not wrong in itself unless it becomes your final worship. Like if you think we control the world because of F-16s, that's Antichrist. If you think that's the bottom line, we've got the hydrogen bomb, we win, you're wrong. And I want you to really understand, this is really important. Like if you're a military man, what I'm teaching this morning, it's absolutely important that you understand that my ultimate loyalty is the king of kings, not to my military command. To make it really real, if I'm an Israeli, the Israelis invaded southern Lebanon. They said, our power can solve the problem in Lebanon. They got in the midst of a family feud. One of the reasons the Israelis finally left is because the Israeli military, one of the mo- it's the most powerful force in the Middle East, surrounded a camp of Palestinian women and children and old men, and they let the phalangists, who are supposedly Christian, just go in and murder them. One of the big problems in Israel today is the horror of what happened in that camp, two camps. What happened? We're the most powerful kingdom in the world, in the, in the Middle East, not in the world. Military power can solve the problem in Lebanon. It didn't. Israel today, we need to be praying because they don't have a heart for Jesus. When I go to Israel, I hear Jesus' name cursed repeatedly. They believe in power. There's a group of very ultra-Orthodox people that believe that they can bring in by obedience to the law. It's a long way from what I'm teaching you this morning, which means you need to pray for Israelis. As Americans, one of the things we're finding out, we drove right from Kuwait to Baghdad in just a matter of days. We're invincible, aren't we? And what are you all upset about today? We're still there. Because you don't ultimately control people by power and might and military hardware. Deep inside, it's about where does your allegiance lie? The Antichrist believes that the ultimate thing in the world is power. As believers, we always submit our power to the lordship of our Savior. And we believe he is God. We believe he determines who is good. 
which helps us to keep struggling for the good. If I'm a policeman, if I'm a fireman, if I'm a soldier, it helps me to stand against when commands are given to kill innocent people. I say no, even if I ruin my career. Then I'm on the side of the angels and not on the side of the demons. So what I'm teaching you today walks right into real life. It will also protect you from disillusionment because you'll ultimately have your trust in the Savior that's coming, in the Savior that today is seeking out human hearts. The next few verses give us the Antichrist's career. This individual that worships himself, worships a God of war, he exercises it. At the, at the time of the end, so this is still a day, I believe, future to us, the king of the south, that's the king of Egypt, according to this passage, earlier in the passage, it always uses the king of the south as the king of Egypt and northern Africa. The Antichrist will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out. The king of the north in this passage would be the Antichrist from that area. He comes against the king of Egypt with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. So with tanks and modern warfare, if you use the symbolism of today, it would be if it happens today, in our near future, it would be with uh, tanks and, and armed forces and battalions and with uh, the navy backing him up. He invades many countries, floods over them like an invincible flood. He also invades the beautiful land. That's the holy land, beautiful for Israelites. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon are in the area of modern-day Jordan. They're also the classical enemies of Israel, and they're already, according to Daniel, on the side of the evil one. They've already joined him, so he doesn't have to worry about them. It also might be true that describing this campaign, when you invade Egypt from the land of Israel or coming down from the north, you don't have to go to Transjordan. You just come right down the plain, and Daniel might be describing that. It says he will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Nubians. The uh, Libyans are the, it's the western border. The Nubians are the southern border. In other words, it's that whole chunk of Africa. And uh, if you don't think Africa is important, then why did the Germans and the United States and the British have to control Egypt? It's absolutely important in world governance. It says, but reports from the east and the north, they will alarm him. He will set out with a great raid to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tent between the sea at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. What Daniel's describing is that this is a campaign that Antiochus Epiphanes never made. So my liberal friends have to say, well, Dave, it's just kind of symbolic prophecy. The writer took some passages from other sections of the Old Testament, like Ezekiel 38, and from some sections on Isaiah, and he just got it wrong. Because Antiochus Epiphanes never made this invasion down to Egypt. He made two down to Egypt. The Romans thwarted him on the second one. He never made this one when he was victorious. And he didn't come to his end in the Holy Land, as this passage describes. He came to his end in, in Persia, in Tabea. Uh, he tried to ransack a temple. It didn't go so well. And he went to Tabea on the way back home to Damascus and Syria's capital, Antioch, and he died on the way. Everybody knows that. In fact, it's in other sources. In December of 168, people knew Antiochus was dead. So if my, if my writer in my liberal classroom is a second-century Jew, he's a bad historian. And what amazes me is, like, he's so accurate about everything else in this chapter, which is why my liberal friends hold it isn't prophecy, because it's so historically accurate. And then suddenly, it's like he fell asleep and went crazy. I would hold that instead, he's inspired by the Spirit, and he telescopes and tells me about an ultimate world ruler. 
he gives me a sketch of his campaigns. And what it's describing is that, according to the book of Revelation, there does arise an ultimate world ruler. And he will strut to the south, and he will set up his kingdom in Israel. You say, well, what's so important about Israel? It's not even as big as the city of New Jersey. It's really important. Three continents meet in that little bridge at the end of the Mediterranean Sea. And every world power always controls Israel. The British ruled the world for many centuries, and they were the ones that bequeathed the Holy Land to us. And now we're the world power, and guess what? If we cut off our funding to Israel, from a human standpoint, Israel is done. You make Israel possible. We control Israel in many ways, which is why the Israelis don't like us too well at times. And it's why it's so strategic in our newscast and everything. The Bible is telling us that ultimately there's going to be a great world leader, a great Western leader that sets up his capital in that precious land. But then it says that God has had it. And the Antichrist has strutted his stuff, and he's boasted his arrogance, and he has wounded his people. Terrible persecution, according to the book of Revelation, takes place against the Jewish people, which is something we need to really pray for. We need to, we need to try to reach Jewish people and reach Israelis, because the Bible's predicting that there's going to be a tremendous, devastating attack against us. But then the Lord's going to fight it. So at that time, Michael the Great, the great prince who protects his people. Remember we learned earlier that he's a defender of God's people. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. And so we're talking about an ultimate great tribulation. But at that time, your people, the Jewish people, Daniel's people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep and the dust of the earth will awake, some in everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What is Daniel predicting? What's the ultimate answer? Here we have this incredible description of how world history is going to end. Terrible persecution against the Jews. According to the book of Revelation, terrible devastating plagues against this planet. Tremendous, horrifying blasphemy against God. Why should we keep on going? Because this present life, this present history, isn't all there is. Michael fights for the children of Israel, but then God gives an incredible promise to Daniel. It says, Daniel, those who are written in the book of life, in the book, in the book of Daniel, there's a book of knowledge, and there's a book of truth. It says those who are written in the book of life are going to rise and they're going to be exalted forever. It also says that those that do evil are going to rise. So the Bible teaches that there's a resurrection for both the good and the bad. So a bunch of your unbelieving friends say, well, I don't believe this Jesus stuff. You mean to tell me that God's going to send someone to hell who never even heard about Jesus or just heard a false message about him and they didn't believe in him so they were lost? No. God isn't going to send anyone to hell just because they never heard of Jesus. You know why people will be in hell? Now, listen to me. This is really important. God knows every human heart on this planet. He knows my heart. He knows your heart. And what Jesus is saying in this revelation 
at the end of time, and we have, I could go into details about when these resurrections take place, but Daniel just gives us a great big picture, resurrection, those that are good, those that are evil. Remember I started out with who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Ultimately, God decides who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And in this passage, God is saying, David, have you ever cursed me? You're a bad guy. Have you ever worshipped just your own strength? Yeah. I make a bad golf swing, and it explodes out of my mouth. And I pray that no church people are listening. Because there's a deadly, arrogant, evil that lurks in my heart. How about you? Anybody understand what I'm talking about? Does anybody ever live caring less about Jesus, not even thinking about him? You don't care for the desire of women. I remember as a little kid playing football as a linebacker, getting totally furious and says, I'm going to destroy the fullback the next time he comes through here. I'm going to kill him. Power. Some of you little boys in this room that are now grown men remember taking little bugs and setting them on fire and doing cruel things to animals. That's Antichrist. And you laughed about it. You're not so good. You see, even this chapter convicts me. It's really easy for me. I was raised as a kid. Antichrist is coming, and we get all excited. Who is he? You know, is he this guy? Is he this guy? You know what really scares me about this passage? As I look at what Antichrist does, I've got the seeds of that badness in me. How about you? And I have the actions of that badness in me. A lot of you men in this room, a lot of you women even, you can remember being fighter pilots and being military guys. Remember when you strutted in with your sunglasses? I mean, I fly little 152s and I strut in with my sunglasses. That's arrogance. That's arrogance. We think we're so great, think we're so powerful. Those are the seeds. You know, how stupid it is. Look how great I am. And that's why I'm so glad in John chapter 5 that I close with today. John chapter 5, the Lord Jesus had a fight with the Jewish leaders. He had just healed a man, and they're all uptight with him because they let a man be healed on the Sabbath. And unlike positive thinking kind of people, the, the Jewish leaders are saying, you have broken the Sabbath. You have healed a man. You're an evil man. In John chapter 5, Jesus looks at them and says, you think that was something? Everything that I see the Father do, I do. The Father has committed all judgment over to me. The one that believes in me, the one who believes in me and accepts me is going to rise to eternal life. And Jesus, in the full measure of the, Old of the New Testament, is saying when you've received Jesus, that he creates a new person inside of you, and your true identity becomes not the arrogant, not the antichrist, not the cursor, not the person that believe in yourself, not the person who does what you please, not the person who, who 
is believing that they're successful because of yourself. Instead, Jesus creates inside of you a new identity, which is really good. It's becoming by the power of the Spirit in your everyday life just like Jesus. And in John chapter 5, instead of being political, instead of saying what people want to hear, Jesus says the ultimate, ultimate, truthful, dividing message. He said, you want to be good? Jewish leaders, you want to be good? Then listen carefully to what Daniel taught you. Listen carefully to what Genesis Deuteronomy taught you. Because if you really listen carefully to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and Daniel. And Jesus would say to all my Jewish friends today, you've been taught all your life, Jesus is the one you should curse. But what Daniel's saying is deep in your heart, the one that gave you life is trying to talk to you. And Jesus is the one that Daniel predicted would come. Jesus is the one that Daniel predicted would be cut off. Jesus is the one that can cause you to be part of that resurrection of the good and not to face the judgment of the evil. And all you have to do to step over that line is just say, Jesus, forgive me. Because the book of John that says all judgment has been given over to his son says that one day I will stand before Jesus. And Jesus will have the books, and he'll know all the things I've done. It will be total truth, and he's the ultimate that decides who's good and who's bad. And Jesus, as I stand before him, all I'm going to say is, Jesus, show me your hands, because that's what I trust. Just, Jesus, show me your hands, because that's all my hope. My hope is in nothing less then Jesus' blood and righteousness. If you've never stepped over that line as we close in prayer now, it's not just walking an aisle. It's not joining a church. It's you deciding in your own heart, recognizing that there's a lot of antichrist inside of you, and you want to join Daniel and being a wise person, and you want to trust in the prince, the ultimate anointed one that he said would come. So as we pray, all you need to do is say, Lord Jesus, I admit that I've got the spirit of Antichrist. I'm an evil person. I'm not good. But I want you to forgive me. And I want your resurrection life to change me and give me an eternal life that will last forever. Will you do it?